The following message was recorded as part of the morning worship celebration of Lake Oconee Presbyterian Church in Eatonton, Georgia. More information about the ministries, staff, and worship offerings of Lake Oconee Presbyterian Church can be found on our website at www.lopc-pca.org. Good morning. Good to see you this morning, and I'm thankful for the opportunity that your session has afforded me to allow me to lead worship. Let me invite you to open your Bibles to the 102nd Psalm, Psalm 102. And we're going to focus on the first 13 verses, Psalm 102, and we're going to begin with verse 1 in a moment. I'd like you to find your place in the Bible, put your finger in your Bible, and then look up so I'll know we're ready to move on. And I also want to encourage you to keep your Bibles open. You'll find that I move verse by verse through the Scripture. And it's wonderful when the Holy Spirit can take the written word and apply it to you directly and as he works through me. So let's get both those mediums working together. Psalm 102 And we're going to begin with verse 1. Let's pray together. Father, some of us have just met. And some of us haven't gotten to know each other yet. And there's always a little awkwardness, Lord, with having a guest preacher. Humbly, I ask you, Father, to overcome that awkwardness. And as we open your word, that we might hear you, that our hearts might be changed, that our minds might be renewed, and that when we leave this place, we'd be able to remember through the power of your Holy Spirit what you've had for us today, that we might take it and apply it in our daily lives. Humbly, we come to you, Father, and we ask your blessing. In the precious name of our Savior, Jesus. Amen. My preaching style is a little different in that I want to introduce the topic and then we'll stand and I'll read the passage and then I'll explain the passage to you. The way I want to introduce it this morning is to remind all of us about something Jesus said. It's recorded for us in Matthew 28, 20. Usually when we think about that particular passage, we think of the commission telling us to go forth into the world and to make disciples. But if you look at the last phrase, it's recorded that Jesus said to us, Lo, I am with you always until the close of the age. You know what that means? It means our Savior, before he left this earth, made a promise to his church. To you and to me. And that promise was that he will be with us. He's not going to leave us. We're not on our own. He's going to be right here involved in our daily life. Our creed tells us that the Holy Spirit proceedeth from the Father and from the Son. So as the Spirit of God dwells permanently in a believer, the Spirit of God is Jesus with us. Very close to us helping us and guiding us. You all believe that? Do you really? 
How come you get so anxious? If he's really with us, our constant companion, why all the anxiety in our society? There's an estimate I just read recently that said that 40 million Americans are clinically anxious people, and that's a dysfunctionality in our society. If you look at most statistics that are gathered today about our general population, the evangelical church is usually at least 50% of that statistic. If you look at the divorces in our society, it's not the unchurched. It's more than 50% the churched. If you look at anxiety and you look at 40 million people, you can be pretty assured that something in excess of 20 million of those are Christians. And it seems to me it's a denial of the promise that God made us, that he's going to be with us. Can there be any doubt that we have a society that's filled with anxiety? Go in your drugstore. Look at all of the prescriptions that are for depression, anxiety, mood leveling, all kinds of things to help us manage the things we encounter in our daily life. Look at the professionals, psychologists, psychiatrists, medical doctors, who many of them will tell you much of what they see in their family practice is a result of anxiety. Ministers spend a great deal of time, as other Christian counselors do, trying to help folks deal with anxiety. When I look at our passage today, and I want to tell you the reason I chose it, I see a prescription for how you and I, as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, can deal with anxiety. I know that probably lots of you would like the preachers in your pulpit to not suffer from some of the problems that you're challenged by. Back in 1988, the church I planted in Columbia, South Carolina, we were in our second building program, and as we approached it, we didn't have enough money and knew we didn't to build the building. So my staff and I and our elders cut our budget and tried to manage it to keep the cash flow up because we needed the facilities. And we did that. At the same time, and this is wonderful planning, Linda and I were building a new house, which we also didn't have enough money to pay for. And when I looked at all the things that were going to be the revenue streams that were going to make that happen, when I looked at it afterward, none of those worked out. None of my plans. You want to make God really laugh? You tell him what your plans are. Well, in the spring of 88, we were moving into our new home, and we were moving into a second addition, 25,000 square feet, three and a half years after we built the first one. And I called a friend of mine. His name was Buck Hatch. He's with the Lord today. Buck was a PCA pastor, lived in Columbia, taught counseling at Columbia Bible College. And Buck had just retired. And I called Buck and I said, Buck, I know you've just retired, but I have somebody I'd like you to spend a little time with. And he said, Bill, please, I don't want to add any more folks. I'm trying to decrease my load. And I said, well, I understand. And I did. I said, but Buck, I really want you to consider seeing this person. And he tried a second time to convince me that he really couldn't do it. By the way, this was a dear friend. 
I said a third time, Buck, it's really important that you see this man. He said, who is it? I said, it's me. That was on a Monday morning. Monday afternoon, I was in Buck's living room. We met together three times, and the only people, because preachers don't reveal these kind of things, the only people who knew it were my wife and the good Lord. Nobody in my church, nobody in my family. And the third time I went over and met with Buck, he said, Bill, let's open our Bibles to the 102nd Psalm. And he said, let me give you the tools to deal with the crisis and the challenges that you face in life. And he gave this to me, and I have shared it in my office with many, many folks over the years. And I repeat it to myself pretty regularly so that I won't be anxious, so that I can live by faith. Can I share that with you? Let's stand together as I read God's Word. I invite you to listen very carefully for God is about to speak to us. Hear my prayer, O Lord, and let my cry for help come to you. Do not hide your face from me in the day of my distress. Incline your ear to me. In the day when I call, answer me quickly. While my days have been consumed in smoke, and my bones have been scorched like a hearth. My heart has been smitten like grass and has withered away. Indeed, I forget to eat my bread. Because of the loudness of my groaning, my bones cling to my flesh. I resemble a pelican of the wilderness. I become like an owl of the waste places. I lie awake. I have become like a lonely bird on a housetop. My enemies have reproached me all day long. Those who derive me have used my name as a curse, for I have eaten ashes like bread and mingled my drink with weeping. Because of your indignation and your wrath, for you have lifted me up and cast me away, my days are like a lengthened shadow. But you, O Lord, abide forever, and your name to all generations. You will arise and have compassion on Zion, for it is the time to be gracious to her. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word. I want you to look at the first and second verses. And as I move through these sections of these 13 verses, I trust with God's help we're all going to see anew a formula for how to deal with anxiety. When you look at the first and second verses, what you hear is the psalmist starting to call out to God. And he doesn't just call out in a formal way and say, God, hear my prayers. Look at what he says. Hear my prayer, O Lord, and let my cry for help come to you. And now you can hear the panic. Do not hide your face from me in the day of my distress. Incline your ear to me. In the day when I call, answer me quickly. Can you hear the psalmist? He's saying, hey, Lord, quit paying attention to everybody else. My needs are so great right now. I want you just to focus on me. And I want you to help me because I can't help myself. You can hear the distress 
you can hear the agony. I don't know if you've ever been there, but I have. My wife has. There have been a couple of occasions. Good Lord, by his will, took a son, a 38-year-old son of ours, to be with him 10 years ago. Very distressful time in our family. Not a time when we lost faith. Just a terrible, challenging time. Some of you, I trust, have been added to that club of parents who have children who've gone to be with the Lord before us. So if you live on this earth and you live long enough, guess what? You're going to have some of that stress, and you're going to have the stimulus that creates anxiety. It's just going to come. I don't care how much money you have or how little you have. If you got a lot of it, you get to be anxious about keeping it. If you don't have enough of it, you get anxious about trying to get more. Same thing with health, same thing with our families, same thing with our jobs, same thing with everything. They all give stimulus for us to be anxious and for us to feel just like the psalmist feels. And it's okay to call out on God. We're his children. It's okay to plead to him. But I hope when we get through with the passage, we'll all say, but I don't have to be anxious about it. Now, if you start looking down, you'll start to see, starting with the third and fourth verses, how the psalmist shares what's going on with him. It's a very revealing passage. In the third and fourth verses, there's a paralysis that sets in when we're anxious. He says, for my days have been consumed in smoke. You know what that means? I get up in the morning and I look around and I can't see where I'm going. It's like the room is filled with smoke and I can't have direction to my life. I don't even really want to try to find direction. I'm just kind of here and I'm paralyzed. My energy is snapped out of me. My will to go has been negated. He says, For my days have been consumed in smoke, and my bones have been scorched like a hearth. You have a fireplace? You ever notice how little sparks pop out of the fire, even with the screens up, and how they hit your hearth? And if you have a fire burning long enough, If you reach out and touch it, it gets warm. He says, I feel just like that. I feel like I'm helpless. And like I keep getting these sparks of pain thrown at me through life. And I can't get out of the way of them. And as they come at me, they have an effect on me. They dry me up. They make me warm in an unhealthy kind of way. Isn't that descriptive of what happens when anxiety gets you? He goes on to say, My heart has been smitten like grass and has withered away. Linda and I spent some, a number of years going to the mission field each year for our denomination. And on one of those trips, we were in Peru, way up in the mountains. And while we were up there with about 350 of our missionaries, I woke up the first morning and I heard this chopping noise. Went to the window and looked out. There was a fellow who worked for this camp, and he was mowing the grass. He had a machete in his right hand. 
and he was holding that tropical grass up in the yard and whacking it off. He mowed the grass, I found out, twice a year. They didn't have a lawnmower. They couldn't get parts for the lawnmower up there. Gas was terribly expensive, and the machete worked just fine. So this was a full-time grass tender who would cut the grass. We walked out that morning, and there was long pieces of grass laying all over our front yard that he had already chopped off. When we came back that afternoon, because of the sun and the heat of the day, the grass had started to shrivel up. It didn't look like grass. It had lost its healthiness. And it was dying. Anxiety will take the very life out of you. It'll just wrench it out of you. And you'll feel like grass that's been cut and has withered away. Can you all start to sense what this man is feeling? If you look down in the fifth through seventh verses, he says, let me tell you how I feel. He says, because of the loneliness of my groaning, my bones cling to my flesh. Now, I want you to know that in my times of anxiety, that has never been an issue for me. You know what I do. I eat more. He says, I resemble a pelican of the wilderness. Where do pelicans live? They live at the coast. If you go over to our South Carolina coast where we live, there are barrier islands along the coast, and I can take you to two of those islands right this moment, and they are covered with pelicans. And people don't see them when they're on those islands, typically, but they see them as they cruise the beaches in big numbers. He says, I feel like a pelican in the wilderness. What anxiety does is it causes you to be removed from what is healthy, and you feel separated. You feel set aside. It's an emotion that affects us because of anxiety. He says, I have become like an owl in the waste places. Owls don't live in waste places. They live in the forest. They live in barns. They live out in fields. But they do not live in the waste places. And that's how he feels. He says, I lie awake. Ever wake up during the night and your mind's running 100 miles an hour? I woke up this morning thinking about worship, thinking about the Word of God, laid in bed and went over my sermon in a dark room. Not anxious, but I woke up. A lot of times anxiety will keep you awake. We have nice clinical names for that. Or anxiety will wake you up during the night, or anxiety will wake you up too early in the morning. And he says, that's how I feel. And then absolutely picturesque. He says, I have become like a lonely bird on a housetop. Have you ever seen a bird silhouetted on the very top eve of a house? And the bird is up there all by itself and it's watching all the people and all the activity that takes place, but it's not involved. It's removed from all that. Anxiety so very often will cause us to feel disengaged. It'll cause us not even to want to be around other people. And a lot of times you'll watch what seems to be busyness 
and you think to yourself, because of the significance of my challenge, what they're doing isn't very significant. And it really does put you on a housetop all by yourself. When you look at the 8th, ninth verses, the psalmist is getting a little paranoid. The way he expresses it, he says, My enemies have reproached me all day long. Those who deride me have used my name as a curse. For I have eaten the ashes like bread and mingled my drink with weeping. And what he's saying is, it's not true. Sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will hurt me. They do, don't they? Somebody says something and it hurts you, and you recoil, and you go home, and you think about it, and you rehearse it, and you rehearse it. And sometimes it was a real comment, and sometimes it was just your perception, and it didn't really happen. But it has the same effect. It's very hurtful. And when you start to get super sensitive, you start to look at yourself, and you lose perspective. And then you start misinterpreting what people are saying around you, and you think everybody's talking about you. I heard a clinical psychologist say one time, a person who really gets to the point where they're real paranoid goes to a football game, and they're sitting in the stands, and the offensive team huddles, and they think they're being talked about. We laugh about it, but haven't you had times when you've gone home and say, they're all talking about me? I thought you were going to talk about me today. You know why? Linda asked me earlier in the week what suit I wanted to wear today. And I picked out a suit. She asked me if I'd like to have it dry cleaned. I said yes. She sent it out and had it dry cleaned. I checked to make sure it was packed. She made sure it was packed for this trip. This morning I got dressed feeling very good in my newly pressed suit. And I was sitting in Sunday school, and I looked down, and guess what? I know you've all noticed this. I don't have my suit pants on. I got another pair of pants. <laughs> I promise you that wasn't intentional. And you notice I haven't left the pulpit? I'm not going to let you see them. At the end of the service, I'm going to do the benediction, and you walk out, and then I'll come down. <laughs> you know what we just did? Instead of getting anxious about it, we laughed about it. You need to learn to laugh, and I need to learn to laugh. We are not perfect people, folks. And this side of heaven, we're not going to get it all right. And there's a lot of the things that happen in our life we can stop and say, look at me, and just kind of look in the mirror and laugh. And when you learn to do that, your smile will return, and you won't feel like everybody's talking about you. He goes on to say, I have mingled my drink with weeping. I tell men all the time, said this to someone at a funeral last week, you know, when God started building these bodies, he gave tear ducts to men and women. And there's a time that it's appropriate for a man to cry. I was sitting having a conversation with some of your folks yesterday afternoon. And somebody sitting there got choked up, and I got choked up. It's okay. Now, you don't walk around crying all the time. But there are appropriate times when it releases some of that anxiety. 
and it helps you be a healthy person. He says, For you have lifted me up and cast me away. My days are like a lengthened shadow. You know, if by God's grace, the Holy Spirit has come on you and has brought you to the realization that you are certainly an imperfect person and that God is perfect, that you're not fully righteous and he is. And if he has brought you to the point that you realize that he's calling you to be his, part of that process is to know that he is a righteous God. And while you are going to experience eternity, the question is, where will you experience it? God's plan has never stopped. Adam and Eve were to live forever. We're all going to live forever. Where are we going to live? To be in the presence of a righteous God, something must happen, and we can't do it. So he sent his son Jesus, didn't he? And Jesus did it for us. He atoned for our sins. He set the record straight with God. And now being covered by the blood of Christ, we have a place permanently in heaven. And not Satan, not us, nobody can take away what God has earned. If we had earned it, we might lose it. We didn't. He did for us. If that's new information to you, then I encourage you to say something to me or to one of the elders of the church before you leave today. And let us talk with you a little bit. I remember in my early 30s when I was at that point and someone talked with me. So don't be bashful. Just walk up and say, hey, Bill, let's talk about what you said today. And we'll get an elder to join us and we'll spend some time together. Are you a believer? There was a time when I would have said yes to that. I was raised in a church and went every Sunday and every Wednesday night, Sunday morning, Sunday night. If you had asked me during the first 30 years or so of my life, I would have said yes. I met a young lady and fell in love with her. She went to a Baptist church. I went to a Methodist church. She got to know Jesus. I got to know the Methodist church. You understand? I didn't know Jesus personally. And over the years, I had a lot of knowledge about him. But there was nothing personal. I praise God there's something personal today. Talk to me if you're not there. And let me minister to you and with you. When you get through looking through how he shares how he feels and what's happening to him. He says, my days feel like they're just running on and on and on and there's no end to this and there's no hope. But I want you to know that his sense that he's been thrown away by God and cast out by God is just how he feels. Because you don't get thrown away if he's embraced you. You're his. Now, that has described how the psalmist feels. When you get to the 12th and 13th verse, something amazing happens. And this is the lesson for today. There's a refocusing that takes place. Instead of looking at himself and saying, God, listen to me, I'm in big trouble. And in saying, here's how I feel and being preoccupied describing it. Now in the 12th verse, 
a huge change takes place. He says, but you, O Lord, the shift is from self to looking at God. Can you hear that, folks? Quit looking at yourself. It's okay to do introspection some of the time, but get your focus back on God. He's doing that. He says, but you, O Lord, are from forever to forever. You're eternal. And then he says, and your name is to all generations. You're working in every generation, and you're working in my generation. In 13, you will arise and have compassion on Zion, for it's time to be gracious to her. He said, I know you're a gracious God. And when I get my thinking straight, I stop thinking about woe is me, and I start thinking about the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and how it's already come to bear in my life and how he hasn't left me or deserted me. And a refocusing takes place. Any of you use a little devotional, Jesus Calling? Do you? Uh, I got introduced to that this year and have used it. Back on October the 17th, Sarah Young, and I commend that devotional to you, and I'm not on commission, but uh, back on October 17th, I opened it up and doing my daily devotionals, and she reminded me of something that's so fitting. She said, when you look at the future, do you see Jesus in it? When you look at the next doctor's appointment, do you remember Jesus was going to be there with you? When you get your next statement from the bank or from the stock brokerage firm you deal with, I laugh. I, I don't like to open those anymore. Uh, well, that's one way. Avoidance stops anxiety. <laughs> but really, do, do you see Jesus in it? Do you realize he said, I'm never going to leave you. Lo, I am with you always to the close of the age. And he's going to keep his word. Amen. Let's pray. Dear Jesus, I thank you. I thank you for our time together. I thank you, Lord, that you're renewing our minds and that you really are massaging our hearts. My prayer for myself and my wife and our kids and their kids and my prayer for the folks that are here today is that we're going to walk away a little wealthier than when we came in, knowing that we don't have to be victims to anxiety. Thank you, Father. In Jesus' name, amen.